Welcome to Ghoul's Night Out with your hostesses, Brandy and Jody. Hello, beautiful ghouls. Welcome. This is Brandy. I'm here with my sister, Jody. Hello. So, we're going to try this this week with the audio the way it is. Hopefully, it works out. If not, sorry, I'm working on it still. But we didn't want to go two weeks without talking to you guys. So, um, we are doing our book episode, which is, oh, The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street by William J. No, I'm just kidding. Hall. (laughs) (laughs) William J. Hall. Um, So, I want to just start by saying that I didn't really care for this book much. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, it was, most of these books that we have read are about a hundred pages too long. Mm-hmm. And the, the amount of describing that they do is so, it's just filler. It's yeah, redundant. It, it's, it's hard to get through. It is. So most of this book, this is a, this is a story of a poltergeist. So basically shit moves all the time. Yeah. Now, I did write, you know, a lot of the times that they said, but, you know, sometimes I'm going to be just, like, shit's moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so we begin the book, and it says, keep two things in mind while reading. Extraordinary claims demand extraordinary proof. Yes. Um, and also, look for the evidence. Poltergeist is innocent until proven guilty. So, then it says, to those who believe, no proof is needed, and to those who don't, no amount of proof is good enough. Exactly. Which is what we've said with every documentary, every book. If you believe it, you believe it. If you don't, you don't. And nothing that anybody says is going to change it. No, the only thing that will change it is if it happens to you personally. Sometimes not even that. That's true. I mean, there, yeah, there's some people that can explain away anything. Or just be like, put their blinders on and be like, I didn't see anything, what? So, the devil is in the details of the witnesses' interviews, so pay attention to, to those is basically what he's saying. Um, these are what convinced the writer that this was real, that this was a real case. So the author of this book, um, he actually hadn't heard of this, but someone posted on Facebook. It was actually the Bridgeport, Connecticut community page on, on Facebook. Um, that, and I actually went on this Facebook page and it is all of the posts is, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? And then people comment on it. And someone said, do you guys remember the Bridgeport poltergeist? It was a huge thing. And there were so many seemingly credible witnesses, so he started researching this. So the house is on Lindley Street. It was a low-income neighborhood in the middle of the city. It was a tiny, unassuming bungalow built in 1923 for a shirt manufacturer. There was a scientific study done and came up with nothing. In fact, it seemed to imply it was a, a, a hoax. It seemed So the scientific study seem to imply that it was a hoax. Mm-hmm. Research led to the lead investigator of the scientific study 
and his name was Boyce Bately, which there was a voice in the other book we read. Yeah, you're right. And who the fuck is named Boyce? I have never heard that name before. But two books about paranormal. Is it the same guy? I don't think so, because oh. Bately doesn't sound familiar, oh, but no, I, I remember there was a voice yeah. in the other book, which I thought that was weird. That is weird. I didn't even connect that. Yeah. Huh. So he seemed puzzled and disturbed that anyone would think that nothing came of this study. The first interview was with Joe Tomek. He said there were several documents and interview tapes that were assembled during the study, and Boyce says that he has them all, which is where the real research began. It all started off by saying that they lived in the house for eight years before anything happened, mm -hmm. which, that's scary. Um, but there's a reason. Yes. Uh, so Jerry and Laura Gooden, he was 41 and she was 36 in 1960. They got married and bought the small ranch house in Bridgeport, Connecticut. There's three rooms. It was uh, 738 square feet, but they were excited. You know, their new house. Their Heck, that's 38 first home. more feet than I've got. <laughs> <laughs> Which I looked this house up on Zillow. <laughs> did you really? I did. And it's like, it is estimated at like $138,000 or something crazy like that. What, what state is Connecticut. So they must have a higher... Absolutely. They yeah. have to. Yeah. I was like, are you... 738 square feet? It was crazy. Mm. It was over 100,000. I don't remember exactly how much, but it was uh, it was crazy. So Jerry was a handyman, always fixing things since he was little and wanted to become a priest. But the Great Depression interfered with that, so he had to go to work instead. He was in the Air Force after high school and was a maintenance man for Har Harvey Hubble Incorporated for 23 years when strange occurrences began. Uh, they manufactured elect electrical equipment. He was always known to be a practical and down-to-earth kind of guy. Good guy. He was a Boy Scout leader and convinced a local shop owner to give boys in need shoes. He said... They will either grow up to be customers or grow up to be stealing from your store. Let's put them on the right track to be customers. Which I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, then, so they say all this great stuff about Cherry, right? Mm -hmm. Then they give Laura two sentences about how she was loving and dedicated to her family and an only child with no other children nearby. So she had social skill, uh, no social skills. Um, was isolated, loud, high-strung, and had no friends. <laughs> I was like, what the... <laughs> Laura? <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> Why? She literally got... And I hate the way this author makes her sound in yeah. this book. She... He makes her sound like a fucking lunatic. Mm -hmm. And she gets two sentences about how she has... No friends, no social skills. She's high, strung, loud, and like, <laughs> like fuck you, buddy. Seriously, <laughs> Laura, poor, poor Laura. I felt so bad. She should write her her own book and be like, okay, first of all, <laughs> she, yeah, you're loud. Let's hear it, girl. <laughs> I want to hear loud. I can show you loud. <laughs> so yeah, that's all they said about freaking Laura. So who knows what she was up to. Um, so they had a son in 1961 on Halloween Day. In 1961. Did I say on 1961? I don't know. 
Anyway, um, his name was Gerard Jr., and he, he couldn't hold, hold up his head. He was diagnosed with cerebral palsy <laughs> when he was six months old. What was that again? Cerebral palsy. Okay. <laughs> or cerebral That's opinion. not what it sounded like the first time, but that's okay. <laughs> you know what I meant. <laughs> anyway. So when he was six months old, they began to focus on their child after that. Uh, their lives changed drastically, understandable. Sacrifices were made for him to be happy. They weren't able to get assistance with paying for medical bills because they own their own home. What? That's such crap. What the fuck? 1961 sucked, but so did now. So. Yeah. Um, so they made him a brace, they made him a brace in a special chair, which I thought was so cute. It was all about him. He wasn't able to do anything for himself. Someone told, someone told them to put him in a hospital and they basically said, go fuck yourself. Good. Exactly. That's what they used to do in the olden days when they had children that had uh, I know. issues. They just drop them off somewhere. Yeah, just, that's horrible. How could someone do that? I was watching a movie. It was called uh, The Disappointments Room. And it was about ghosts, obviously. But, uh, and I don't know if this is true, but I think it might be. Back in, you know, the olden days when they would have children that had some kind of, you know, deformity or something like that, they would build these rooms in their houses where there was no, um, like, doorknob or anything on the inside of the room. So they built a cage. Basically. To hide hide these kids in. That's terrible. Man, I Well, I mean, they... That... Is that any... Or that's probably better than putting them in, like, an insane asylum, which is what they did, too. I guess. Oh, my God. But, yeah, they were so embarrassed of them. And they called them disappointments room. Oh, oh my God. But I don't know. This was a movie, so I don't know. If, I think it might it, be true. It would not surprise me at all. That oh, is no. terrible. Not at all. Oh, my gosh. And the father, so the father and the mother and the daughter, they were like in the 1800s or something. They were the ghosts. Um, and she would see like stuff like she saw how the girl, the little girl died. Yeah. And her father killed her. And he's like, she won't embarrass me anymore, or something like that. I'm like, oh, fuck off, asshole. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So then, her brother isn't able to take care of Laura's mother anymore. So her 75-year-old mother moves into this tiny house. Oh, my God. And they take care of her, too. So they're taking care of the grandma, or the mother, and the, their son. Yes. And... Son can't do anything for himself, and the mother's 75 years old, so, um, and she does this for four years. She cared for her son and her mother, and I said, paranormal shit was probably going on this whole time, and she was just, <laughs> just too busy <laughs> and exhausted to even notice. She's just too tired to <laughs> care. Exactly. So after that, um, the mom went to their nursing home. They visited her all the time until her death two years later. And after catching a cold, Jerry Jr. passed away at September 27, 1967, at six years old. So sad. This, like, completely broke them. 
Um, so the day after they bury their son, Laura has a hysterectomy for a tumor they had found in months prior. Can you fucking imagine? Poor Laura. Probably because she was so high strung. <laughs> Maybe and that. <laughs> God. <laughs> so they went to their son's grave daily. They kept a shrine in the living room, and one day they decided to take it down and move on. They wanted to adopt a child, and the people that they knew wrote 25 letters of recommendation for oh. them to get this child. So they get a preschool age Native American little girl from Ontario, Canada. She ran straight to them. They fell in love with her instantly. Um, her name is Marcia, but it's spelled Marcia. Yeah. So I might say Marcia, but I'm talking about the little girl. Um, they were, they, she was sometimes known as Marcy. She did not have a good past. Uh, something about the youngest of nine children and she was tied to a chair is not good. But Laura was too overprotective. She didn't see it was weird at all. She wasn't used to it. She, uh, you know, she was hovering over that little boy for six years. Mm -hmm. She had to. So, you know, so she's treating her the same way. Probably, yeah. Which is, that's, I mean, that's all she knows. Yeah. She's never been a mother, you know, before her little boy. Uh, the little girl would follow Jerry around whenever she got the chance. So she was a daddy's girl. She would start at a public school when Jerry's hours were cut. And they started, she started being bullied at school. Some asshole pushed her down and kicked her, causing significant injuries. And they decided she wouldn't go back. So they got a tutor and said the tutor said she was nice, quiet, and a shy little girl. They start talking about how she was holding all her anger inside, and it was pent up and possibly could have caused the activity. Um, activity started after Marcia was adopted. So, at first it was <clears throat> small items out of place. Always starts like that. Yeah. But it happened so often that they became suspicious of it. So they had these friends, and the friends had a daughter that her name was Rosemary. And they would sit, the uh, Rosemary and Marcia would sit on opposite sides of the couch. One time, Rosemary's side of the couch lifted up, and the more she reacted, the higher it went. It eventually swayed there for a minute and then lowered slowly back down to the ground. And poor Rosemary looked at Marcia in horror and said that she just sat there with her hands folded in her lap with a look of wonder on her face along with a nervous smile she would become known for. <laughs> so Rosemary freaked out because she saw her friend, all she saw her friend doing was smiling. So she ran and told her mom and dad, and they laughed and, you know, shooed her away. Uh, after the, after that. My kid came <laughs> home and told me that he was sitting on a couch, and it started floating in the I air. Know. I'd be like, oh my gosh. Oh, I know. What's going on? I Is know. that house haunted? Well, we're obviously more open-minded. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be like, oh, that's so funny. I know, go play. Oh my gosh. Okay. That didn't really happen. <laughs> Um, okay, so after that, the girls began to play more often and began 
you know, playing like normal children, not sitting on the opposite ends of the couch. But Marcia had a ton of stuffed bears in her room and told Rosemary that they were her only friends and she would and she would come over to play and she would find Marcia sitting cross-legged on the floor, rocking back and forth and talking softly in a strange language. She asked what she was doing and she said she was talking to her grandfather. Like, what? Uh, Grandpa was not happy she was adopted and they, they missed each other. She was the only child out of nine that was adopted out. So we get to the first call to the police in 1972. Significant timing, though, because the Exorcist novel had just come out in 1971, and the movie was released December 26, 1973. And during the 60s and 70s, Rosemary's Baby and The Omen were all released. So during this time, you know, people were, like, freaked out about demons possessing. But they called, a, they called the cops to report a rhythmic pounding, which I thought that also reminded me of Unwelcome because yeah. of the native, it was, he was making fun of that guy that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jerry said it was like the house was being stoned, which is crazy. Oh, and yeah. that would be scary. Uh, they weren't frightened. They were just annoyed. They didn't think for a second that it was paranormal. Also, the hospital down the road was under construction. So they wanted the city to find out what the fuck the noise was all about. You know, I mean, that would be my first thought, too. Yeah. So they were trying to find a reasonable explanation, and it was close to Halloween. But the noise had a definite pattern, and it was happening all the time, day and night. Like, you know, there was no certain time. They were really confused and just annoyed at first, which, you know, again, understandable. And that's totally normal. Yeah. Nobody would be like, oh, my God, it's a ghost. You know, yeah, well, exactly. Zach Bacon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the house was possessed. Oh, wait, that's me. <laughs> oh, wait, I got to say I want to beat the shit out of someone. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, cop friend and neighbor, John... Holsworth told them they should record the noises so that they, you know, they could help them find, you know, figure out what the heck it was. So the noise started in the kitchen and it would follow the family around the house. So he suspected these people down the street who had a bunch of kids and motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So that's who Jerry thought it was. Well, the, the damn kid and motorcycle family moved. So the noises seemed to stop for a short while. You know, damn kids. <laughs> but very soon, trouble began again. They were pissed and frustrated. They felt helpless. They asked everyone, and no one could find the source. They had every everything checked out. Um, they even had geological factors, but nothing was found. Jerry was convinced it was someone outside, They were vocal about a condominium that was supposed to be built next to the house. They did not want them to build it. So he thought maybe the contractors were trying to get people around that area to sell. No proof. And the sounds seemed to be coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything that they think about is just like, you know, that can't be it. That, That doesn't make sense. The noises would stop sometimes, but always come back in November and would continue on and off for months. 
Which I thought that was weird. Every November they came back. Hmm. Uh, next, the city said no idea and wished them well. Like, <laughs> stop calling. We don't know. Um, in the summer of 1974, both Laura and Jerry saw a disembodied hand or, and found nothing. So they, they saw this disembodied hand and they couldn't figure out. Damn kids. <laughs> Got them motorcycles. <laughs> Um, so then in the fall, Laura heard three knocks on the front door and opened it to find no one was there, but there were wet footprints on the stoop. <laughs> I have another screen. That's creepy. It was a dry night, no moisture in the air at the time. Um, on Friday, November 21st, the Gooden family and the wife of a four- and a 14-year-old daughter of the cop friend and neighbor, John Holsworth. They were having dinner, and they heard breaking glass, and the lower pane of glass from the window in the master bedroom was busted out from the inside. That's so crazy. Again, unwelcomed, same thing. Uh, The pounding peaked the next night, and the next chapter was called Hell Weekend Begins. So this is where, like, shit hits the fan. Yeah. So, November 22nd, 1974, after a normal dinner, the family went to the living room to relax before bed, and they heard a noise from the master bedroom. So, they went in, shade was up, and the curtains had fallen to the floor, which, again, that's how Unwelcome started. I wonder if Unwelcome, instead of actually being a demon or whatever it was, was a poltergeist. Well... There were no writings or anything. And they didn't have, like, spears appear out of nowhere. Yeah, they, the, whatever family that was, the Unwelcome Book, they had physical shit. This is literally just shit moving all the time. Yeah. So anyway, curtains fell on the floor. They were relieved. They didn't even think anything of it. And they put the curtains back up and started for the living room again. And before they even left the room... Same thing happened. Shades went up all the way and the curtains fell to the floor, which how fucking frustrating would that be? Mm -hmm. Um, They basically shrugged at each other and decided to go back to the living room. These people are full of denial. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Let me tell you. So about a half an hour later, they hear a ruckus in the kitchen and the curtains from the door were on the floor with the curtain (laughs) rod. Uh, Jerry says, whatever it is, it doesn't like curtains. Trying to break the tension. (laughs) Went back into the living room, um, but they were waiting for something else to happen at this point. Mm -hmm. Then the drumming started again, super loud, and everyone is is starting to get scared. It then simply stopped, and everyone went to bed. That was that night. So Saturday, the 23rd, that day they had plans to go visit Jerry's cousin and they ran a few errands. They were gone all day until about 4.30 p.m. When they got home, Jerry notices that Marcia's TV, which is usually on a stand, is laying screened down on her bed. He's confused, but he picks it back up and he, he hooks it back up and puts it back where it was. Then he says... He went to the kitchen to join Laura, only to find dishes rising out of the sink and flying around the room. That's a quote. They eventually smashed one by one on the floor with enough force to shatter uh, within a few minutes. 
So Jerry starts picking up the plates. He sees a few knives from the block rising up and flying towards him. None of them hit the, hit him, but oh my God. That, I would be out of that house so fast. Oh my God. Oh. We'll talk about that because poor freaking Marcy asks to leave a couple times. This poor little girl. Anyway, I'll get to that. So he goes to inspect this knife block thing that is screwed into the wall. But as soon as he reaches it and touches it, it pushes itself out of the wall. And it says it was visibly straining to free itself. So probably like rocking back and forth. Oh my God. It finally did and raced directly towards Jerry. He reaches out to defend himself and ends up catching it. So after that, they clean up. You know, I mean, so I'll be like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, Brandy. (laughs) Better make room. (laughs) I mean, what, what, what's happening? (laughs) Then you tell me, I'll be like, what the fuck are you doing? We're going to go ahead and record right now. (laughs) Right. All right. No freaking way. Heck yeah. Your house. If, yeah, I would. You would see if I had stuff flying around in my house to see at first. Yes, I would have to see it to believe it myself. Oh, you know well, this. Yeah, I would, I would have, have to. I would too. Yeah. Then I would freak out and run away. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the errands that they ran was the grocery store. So Laura starts putting the groceries away, and she hears something behind her. So she turns around and sees the table lifting off the ground until it's high enough to where it. Flips over upside down. Groceries go flying everywhere and lands on two of the table chairs. Um, Laura stood there dumbfounded and screaming. And again, I say, I really don't like the way this guy describes her and talks about her. Maybe it's just me because it it sounds like she is a raving freaking lunatic when stuff is happening. Which, I mean, she might be, but hello. It's yeah. understandable. She's yeah, exactly. freaking out. That's scary. So then the 300-pound refrigerator slides and hovers six inches off the ground. It rotates and then lowers back to the floor where it it was obvious it had been moved. So it wasn't in the same spot that it had moved from. And this, you know, they have carpet in their fucking kitchen, which no. Ew. Don't do that, which I say that later, I think. That's even worse than when the carpet's in the bathroom. Uh, absolutely. That is just no, no. There should carpet should not be a thing. I'll be watching like House Hunters or something on HGTV, uh-huh. and every single time if they go in a house and someone has carpet in the bathroom, everyone's like, "What? Yeah, no. Is there what no. is carpet in the bathroom? That's disgusting. No. How would you ever keep that clean? Ever? Well, no. In our old house in Danville, uh-huh. there was carpet in the bathroom. Oh no! I just I I hate carpet. Oh, I do too. So, so this this refrigerator it's out of place, kind of to make sure everyone would see that it was moved. Um, then this heavy TV console in their kitchen slowly tilted itself and slammed fast and hard onto Laura's. But smashing two of her toes. So they clean her up and make dinner. They change her blood, quote, 
blood-soaked bandages and help her into her chair in the living room. Um, what the fuck? Take her to the hospital. That's how people used to be in the day, back in the day. They had to be dying before they would go to the hospital. Well, next thing I said, I would be running to the ER just to get the fuck out of that house. <laughs> yeah. Things are happening. I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> My foot hurts. Yeah, I need to just go. See you later. <laughs> not. Okay, so Jerry goes to the kitchen and starts putting the rest of the things back in order and feels something in the kitchen. He says a presence seemed to be moving around. So he hears something and turns to see the table had tipped up again and was resting on the chair. So he puts it back and goes to the living room to watch TV with Laura. Um, can we say denial? <laughs> he said it was ho- he was hoping it would keep their minds occupied and calm their nerves. Again, please say it with me. Denial. Oh my God. Dude, things are flying around in your kitchen and you're just, Oh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll just watch some TV. What's on the tube, huh? <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, so Jerry decides go, to go back into the haunted kitchen to make coffee. Because, you know, he wanted his nerves calm. So, coffee. <laughs> he makes it, pours two cups, and is on his way to the living room. And hears a screeching sound. And then a loud thud behind him and turns around to see the table upside down again and resting on one chair and the other chairs have all been pushed aside. So he gets Marcia to take the coffee cups and he puts it back. Then they they decide it's bedtime. So they they go to their bedrooms. They go to sleep and they get up. It'll all be a dream. Oh my gosh. I think that's what they think. So Jerry goes to the bathroom to shave and they hear a noise come from Marcia's room and they hear her scream and rush in. Poor Laura is limping as fast as she can, which is, that's what it says. (laughs) And they find uh, Marcia's TV has come down from the shelf again and landed on her her ankle. Uh, Jerry connects it this time and sticks it in the hallway. Then I imagine he brushes it off like, like he's solved something, like brushes his hands together, like there, it's in the hall. It's much it's better. <laughs> God, don't need to worry anymore. Um, so they're all awake now and go back to the living room and turn on Battle of the Bulge, which is a movie. Which I was like, what? I've heard of it before, but I've never, I don't know what it is. I have never seen it. So they're all like awake, obviously now. So they're watching this movie. At some point, Marcia goes to the bathroom. They hear a commotion in there. Uh, They go to see what the fuck, and the bathroom is a wreck. Marcia is standing there with her hands on her head, trying to protect herself from flying things. Uh, The shower curtain fell. There are towels, toiletries. Everything's everywhere. Caps are all broken off, and they hear noises from all around and realize that the curtains are coming off the windows in every room. And guess what they do? Go to bed? Well, they clean up again. Oh, then clean up, then go to bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they finally seem to be getting a bit worried about what's going on, and they stay in the living room all together until 3 a.m. They tuck Marcia in and go to bed, and Laura, uh, he actually says to Laura, I hope tomorrow will be a better day. Oh, my God, dude. Because this is all just going to disappear. Yeah. 
so Jerry gets up and goes to the kitchen to make breakfast and is shocked <laughs> to see the table is flipped again. Oh and and the refrigerator is blocking the door to the outside. He doesn't understand how they could have slept through all these things, which I will get into later. Um, and again, they say his confusion morphed into terror, which mm. they say that a lot, yeah. which he just kind of seems confused and stupid to me yeah. a lot. So, so he makes the table smaller. He removes the leaves and the, the casters, hoping to limit further damage. So I guess they just figured they have a new roommate now. They're just going to, you know, let's just make it. the table smaller so it can just flip a smaller table. <laughs> so he goes and tells Laura what he saw, and they had a crucifix and a picture of Jesus that fell off the wall and took the nails, too. Then they hear a loud crash in Marcia's room, and her large wooden bureau has fallen really close to her. Thank God it didn't hit her. Um, another crucifix had fallen from where it hung above the door, and it fell with such force that it actually smashed onto the ground. Uh, then more noises from the living room. They run in there and see all three recliners are either tipping back and forth, levitating, or being flipped over. That's fucking nuts. So everything, in the, it, everything else in the room is still... Uh, but the TV was repeatedly making sounds of a doorbell, which creeped me That's out. That's creepy. And they were really scared now. At first, they all thought it was harmless. What? <laughs> I am sorry, but none of that sounded harmless. No. I, harmless or not, that is unnatural and scary. Yeah. So they're all scared now. Um, they felt as though the house was attacking them. So Laura called the Hoffmans and... It's, it says she just starts screaming in the phone, help us! Strange things are happening here! And I'm like, dude, why do you have to describe her like that? Well, maybe, <laughs> I mean, I think he's an issue with women. I really do. Maybe that, or maybe she really did act like that. I don't know, but jeez. I mean, after he gave literally Jerry a full paragraph about yeah. how wonderful he is, yeah. and then Laura... She's loud and no friends, no social skills. Horrible. Okay, anyway. Which so, she probably just had social anxiety and... Probably. It was probably a perfectly normal person. Uh-huh. Oh, I Okay. So, Harold Hoffman is on his way. So, Mary, his wife, called the police, and they all go outside on the porch to wait for them. Janet Holsworth, the neighbor's daughter, is walking her dog, and Jerry starts to yell at her, probably trying his hardest to act normal. Um, and then they all hear Laura start screaming and look over to see a the green couch that was on their front porch. It was hovering over a foot in the air, eventually floating up to about four feet, then came crashing down to the ground. He then yells to Janet to please go get her dad, who is the cop friend. Because they're in trouble here. So she goes and gets her dad, John, and he finds them crying in a stairwell on the front porch. Jerry tells him there's some evil force wrecking his house. John goes into the house and tells them to stay outside. So he's just looking around at the disaster and asks Jerry, like, what the fuck? Your entire house is destroyed. Like, what have you guys been doing? Seriously. <laughs> um, then Jerry yells, the TV! 
John looks behind him, and the TV has moved, so he examines it, moves it back, and it shifts again. Then the chairs began opening and closing, and then the refrigerator started to move. He said it made no noise, just smoothly floated across the carpeted floor. Again, I put, please don't have carpet in your kitchen. Mm -hmm. you know. So he says later that he was certain he was witnessing something supernatural. Like, uh, yeah, duh. How else are you going to explain that? So he said the fridge jumped a good two feet and hit him in the elbow and didn't make a sound. Mm. Uh, so he called for backup. So officers Carl Leonzi and Joe Tomek, they go in and they think they've been burglarized. Laura's crying. so uh, They tell her not to worry that she's safe and that they're not coming back. Um, she tells them that they don't understand that it's always something happening. So they start telling them about the banging and the noises and about things moving. So Joe goes to the TV and sets it right side up and it falls. So he puts the TV on the stand and it started floating, hung in the air long enough for him to try to see just how it was floating and found nothing. So he probably was Put his yeah. arm under it, around it, like what, how mm. the fuck? So they just continued to watch TV and watch, watch the TV. It's like floating there. It starts to swing in the air and would pause, turn, then lower back down. So it was, it was like random crazy moves. Like it was insane. Yeah. So now there's another patrol, patrol cars with officers George Wilson and Leroy Lawson. The other officers were filling the, t the two new in on what was happening, and obviously they were skeptical, which everybody, you know, that's, that's normal. But behind jo Joe's back, while he's explaining this, the refrigerator started floating, and the two new officers see this and start to freak out. <laughs> um, again, no noise. Creepiest thing ever. No vibrations. They started examining it you know, above, below, in the basement, they found nothing. So Laura's freaking out and hysterical crying. Jerry goes back and forth from being scared to mad, and Marcia shows no emotion. And I just said Marcia. I knew mm -hmm. I would do it. But Marcia shows no emotion. Weird. Mm -hmm. So Officer Tomek was kind of looking at her because in his experience, he said children typically will be terrified unless she's gotten used to it. Which, who, I mean, this could be ha have been happening her entire life, for all we know. That's true. He says he just he just saw The Exorcist, and it was kind of reminding him of that, but he's skeptical. But as a non-believer, he suddenly had to come face-to-face -face with the possibility that this could be paranormal. There was no evidence of a hoax. Finally, one of the officers finally calls an ambulance for Laura's foot. Oh, my God. Thank you. Then Marcia's bureau fell again with everyone in the living room, so everyone, including her. All the officers are in the hall, and they're just talking about this craziness when a gold cross that was hung on the wall began to swing and pulled itself with the nail out of the wall and hit Officer Lawson in the chest. He jumped and announced he was out of there. <laughs> I'm out. That's it. <laughs> the smartest one of the bunch. Seriously. So they called the fire department because 
they had been blasting near the house, so they thought that might be the cause. Give me a break. No, that's not how Seriously, a total of 10 firemen show up. Basically all, it was kind of weird because they called for the fire department and two of the firemen were on their way home, heard it. They were like close. So they came. Then there were, I think there were officers out on like a job. They came and then the ones from the firehouse came too. So like 10 firemen show up and Jerry's friend, Ted. So lots of people in this mm-hmm. house. So activity. A teeny tiny little house. Yeah. 783. How does their shit even have room to move? I know. How do they have three recliners? Mm-hmm. Three recliners. That's crazy to me. Those things are big. Unless it was like the little ones in the. I don't know how things were back then. Uh, anyway, so <coughs> activity starts again. Jerry and Ted are in the kitchen, and the TV and stand slowly lower to the ground. Jerry loses it and starts to cry, and he's realizing that he can't ignore it anymore. It's yeah. happening in front of his face. Um, so people are nosy, mm-hmm. and they start to crowd around their yard, and some even make it inside. Everyone was giving suggestions on what they should do. You know, everyone wants to put their two cents in. But they were asked to leave, and and they were not happy about that. So Fire Chief was at a loss, and he called Father Doyle, the firehouse chaplain, to ask for help. He says, I'm not a drunk, but this is what's happening here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he picked him up. Uh, Again, Laura's still crying. I thought she was. Oh, no, she must have come back by then. She's always crying and hysterical. Oh, okay. And that's the way he paints her in this book, which pisses me off. Marcia, or Marcia says the cat talking is, is talking. It, everything's a mess. Father Doyle gets there and feels an evil spirit in the house. He was going to do a basic blessing of the house, but when he went to pick up his holy water, it would just fall out of his reach. He put everything away and said... We shouldn't aggravate the spirits. So he blessed the house and then called Father Alphonse Tribot an exorcist. Um, so in comes Mary Pascarella, I think. She is a part-time school librarian and a psychic, and she wants to test Marcia's psychic abilities, but nothing comes of that. So she calls Ed and Lorraine Warren. So Ed agreed to visit while Lorraine stayed, be- stayed behind. After hearing about all the people, including officials that can verify what they are seeing, Ed got close to the house and didn't have any trouble finding it because of the huge crowd that filled both sides of the street. Um, He had to park four blocks Mm -hmm. away. And I I said, how is this not more known? I've never heard of this. With all these people that were interested, you would just think that it would you know, it'd be more The only thing I can think of is because it was so long ago and yeah, that maybe. kind of thing was not out in the open. Yeah. It was yeah. kind of kept, you know, secret. Well, people would think you were fucking crazy. Yeah, exactly. So Ed interviews everyone and heads home. As soon as he gets there, Ed Lorraine and a seminary student named Paul Eno and Father Charbonoa, which I don't know if I said that right, and... From now on, he's going to be called uh, Father Bill. So they left to go back to the Lindley Street house. People are still everywhere. Paul was told to stay with 
with Marcia at all times, just in case it was a hoax, which, you know, that's understandable. Everything's still going crazy while everyone is standing there watching, like, what the fuck is going on? Anyone they tell doesn't believe until they see it for themselves. Then a standalone ashtray fell and broke. Uh, Marcia said, oh, no, Dad, I bought that for you for your birthday. And Jerry says, who cares? Evil spirits are trying to kill us all. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God. Jerry's losing it. So everyone is leaving, and Officer Tomek had an idea. So he thought whatever this was was intelligent, and he wanted to try something. So he went in and saw everyone was preoccupied in the kitchen. He went to Marcia's room and said softly, if you can hear me, move something. Immediately, several things on her wall came to life. Just the items, not the wall. Then he said, okay, you can stop, and it stopped. Which, what the fuck? He kept this to himself for the next 40 years. Wow. He didn't tell anybody about that shit. Crazy. Um, so news stations started to show up later that day. They had to do crowd control because over 2,000 people showed up and were just standing outside these people's house. It's well, crazy. What are they going to see staring at someone's house? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. People were going nuts. They were yelling out questions to the police. People started selling snacks and drinks like as a fucking event <laughs> of some kind. They were very bored in that neighborhood. Obviously. People threw garlic at the house. Someone brought a child's coffin, which, I mean, come on. Yeah. Fuck you people. And I'm telling you, people start acting stupid when a bunch of them get together. Well, they were seeing things, too. People were looking in the windows and saw furniture move. They had two swans out in their front yard, and they kept moving. They also heard a deep, guttural voice coming, it was like calling out near the house, and no one knew where it was coming from. Yeah. It seemed to be coming from these swans, though, which is yeah. super weird. Yeah. So, uh, later that evening, fireman Paul McKenna was at the house earlier in the day and went home. He was telling his family about what he, what had happened, and his stepsons did not believe him. So, he took them there. Uh, Donald, 23, Dan, 26, and Paul, 15. The house was still filled with people. They had to squeeze into the living room. But the police officers were still investigating. What? They had to squeeze into the living room. And the police officers were like... That's what I mean. How can anyone do anything... Seriously! ...with that many people in there? You can't! (laughs) You can't even fucking breathe around that many people. (laughs) The house is filled with people. Um, That'd be like all those people in my house. Oh, no. No. That's No. Horrible. So things start flying around again, and everyone sees. And then McKenna tells the boys, you can't tell anyone. Um, what? Whatever. What the fuck? Like, that's going to fly. Look at this cool shit. Uh, don't tell anyone, though. <laughs> that's not going to work. Especially when they're young. and Exactly. There's a 15-year-old yeah. dude. I mean, come on. Whatever. He's going to tell everyone. <laughs> So Jerry keeps hearing these knocks at the kitchen door, and every time he runs to see who was there, and no one's there. <laughs> the definition of crazy? Well, it politely says that uh, people were like, maybe it's something else. <laughs> maybe 
It's not someone <laughs> actually. Not. Like he was running to the door, like what the fuck is that? <laughs> Damn kids and their motorcycles. <laughs> Okay, so Ed, Lorraine, Paul, and Father Bill come to the house. News crews are trying to get anything. Some asshole sees a Russian Orthodox prayer book in the house. And in the newspapers, right after that, it says that Marcia was into the occult. And she carries bizarre books wherever she goes. What the fuck ever? So Marcia, Marcia did get caught trying to fool everyone with the recliner, but... I think she was she was playing around. She's a little kid, she's a kid. She's and she's not getting the attention at that moment. Exactly. But also not the time. Marcia. Yeah. But she's a kid. So. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So now it, I'm I'm going to talk about this cat a little bit. Okay. Cat comes up. Um, they think the cat can talk. <laughs> Jerry said that the cat went in for surgery and acted strange after that. They said they didn't see the cat talk, but it would be in the basement alone, and they would hear it singing. (laughs) I cannot deal with the fucking cat. I can't. Okay, so it's, it's... They would hear it singing, and it would kick at the door and call them Dirty Frenchmen. Are you Dirty Greek? going on ever. Like, like, just so confused all the time. Father Bill was talking to Marcia and observed her to be very insecure. The white went off and the rod, uh, rod shot out from under the tablecloth and almost hit him. Then they hear a horrific voice saying the words jingle bells. They would hear these voices coming from the area of the cat or the swans in the front yard. Jingle bells. What's that? So Ed tried to record these voices that they they would hear, but because they didn't actually know where they were coming from, they wouldn't show up on the recordings. Um, they always smelled sulfur, and it seemed stronger in Marcia's room, which not good. But Paul had been observing Marcia, and by all accounts, she was just a sweet little girl. She wasn't doing anything. Everyone everyone thinks she is involved somehow. I'm like, what the fuck leave her alone she's a little girl so next day there's still a crowd not as big but because of the news that had been they had they had to put up roadblocks and had to prove you had to prove to you that you lived on that road to get on it people are fucking ridiculous i know so laura calls father bill and told him that the activity is still happening but worse than before he gave her some words of assurance, and they all left to head for the house. Again, Laura freaking out as he paints her this entire book. People and news reporters were coming in without knocking or asking. Like, what That's the fuck? Rude. Fuck off. Uh, even the police were there, and they were still just walking into this house. Uh, but they were kicked out, thank God. Ed and Father Bill tried to get an exorcism, but the church said that there wasn't any evidence of a supernatural nature and determined it was some sort of natural cause. They just didn't want to face public scrutiny, Mm -hmm. so they were like, sorry about you. Mm -hmm. So Jerry went to work, and the ridicule he had to face was constant. These assholes at work always 
you know, saying stuff. And so work was no escape for Jerry. He was exhausted and he was getting depressed, which again, very understandable. That just shows you how different things are now. Because if, if that was happening now, people would be all about it. People would be like, oh my gosh, tell me everything. I'm spending the night right now. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So Ed asked Laura if she was up for an exorcism and she said she would try anything at this point. She also said that her and Jerry didn't believe in ghosts. So she had questions. Who is it? Why are they being so destructive? Why are they here? Ed told her he thinks it's an evil spirit that has attached itself to her family. Um, she then wondered if it was their son because the flowers that had always moved used to be on his grave. I was like, um, no, no, that, no. So reporters are everywhere and Ed and Lorraine leave to go home and they see if they can set up this exorcism and they won't talk to the reporters, but they do get pictures and Ed tells them that they're not going to talk to them at the house, but they could follow them home and they would talk to them there. So obviously some of these reporters follow them home and Paul goes to a convenience store and get some, some hard candy. Lorraine liked hard candy. So he got her some. Then it comes out that Lorraine and Ed Warren were drugging the family and it was all a hoax. They, that the candy that they, that they get, got this candy and laced it with drugs and they were giving it to the family. Oh my God. And that, that was the tamest of the rumors that mm. were going around. So back at the house, Paul was giving everyone this, this candy and he stopped behind Marcia's chair and he started to feel it rising. So he pushed it down and felt pressure pushing back. But other than that, the house was quiet for several hours. Okay. So, um, the house was quiet. Then Jerry felt that he, he feels a feeling when things are starting to happen. So he feels this feeling. And then he thought that he saw the, he saw the thing and realized that a picture that they had hung up of the Last Supper throughout this whole thing, it hadn't been touched, which is kind of weird because it seems like everything is just like flying around mm -hmm. their house. Then they all see this smoky, yellowish, white, gauzy mist. You could see through it, but the image on the other side was distorted. And then it separated into four beings or entities. They smelled sulfuric acid, sulfuric, sulfuric. And there was a constant hum, which that creeped me out. For some reason. All of a sudden, Jerry began a Gregorian chant. He began to say mass in Latin. He hadn't been around anything like that since he had been an altar boy 40 years ago. He said the whole mass verbatim. He chanted the mass of the dead, which is offered to adults when they die, and the mass of the angels, which is offered uh, to children when they die. He repeats this all verbatim in Latin. Okay. He was even offering the responses in Latin. He picked up the, a jar of holy water he had. His voice changed into a, a baritone, which was clearly not his voice. He walked back and forth, shaking the holy water throughout the room. The four figures began to move about as if organized and followed Jerry from room to room. Laura said she had never seen him act that way, and she could sense his rage. And like he was, he was bumping into things, clearly didn't know what he was doing. Everyone is scared and starts freaking out. Paul thinks that they resemble parasites feeding on negative energy. 
So he starts to get mad and positions Mar Marcia behind him. As his rage grew stronger, he felt the entity's rage get stronger, larger, and more well-defined. So obviously it was feeding on that. Yeah. So one of these things tried to pass Paul on his left and he moves instinctively to block it and was shocked that he felt it push back against his shoulder. Like, I know, I screamed again. Like, at what? He felt a bony structure that that was the best way he could describe it. It was it was bird-like. It had substance, so it was, uh, it was an actual three-dimensional being. Like, what? That's creepy. So creepy. I don't like that. No. So this physical aspect did not fit any poltergeist concept that he knew of. Neither did it fit well with any knowledge of uh, demon spirits or psychokinesis. So like, what the fuck is happening in this house? So the entity eventually got around Paul, and the other three stayed together behind that one, picked up poor Marcia, and in one quick motion threw her across the room. Then it combined to one big form, one cloud that kept growing and filling the whole house. Paul was sure that the negative energy was feeding it, so he ordered everyone out of the house. And it says they stood out in the cold rain. Then, then it says the crowd was like stirring up and wondering what the fuck was going on. They're standing out there in the rain. What the fuck? It's so scary. <laughs> they could hear a commotion in the house, and Paul told them to stay put and went to the neighbor's house to call uh, in the rain. Animals were going crazy, too, around that which is super creepy to me because animals sense shit. Oh, yeah. So when Paul is at the neighbor's house using their phone, he hears three knocks, and they answered, and no one was there, which I was like, oh, my God, I followed him there. Yeah. Those poor people. So the Warrens and Father Bill get back to the house around 9.15. Father Bill is blessing the house and goes to the basement. So Sam the cat is basically trying to distract him, even trips him a little then Father Bill thinks he sees something out of place, like a shadow, but dismissed it because they weren't in the best lighting, and it looked again. Uh, he looked again and noticed, noticed it was actually lurking several inches away from the wall. Mm -hmm. It was like a piece of black cardboard, no face, just hovering there. So and the Rain Warren, they uh, they said they could see it too and moved closer. They both were convinced that this thing was a demon, and all three agreed to just not tell the goodies. You know, you know, because why would you tell the homeowners they had a new demon pet? Mm -hmm. Why? Like, that's a total secret, right? So well, that's what they were there for. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> we're just, oh, we found something, but no, you can't know. It's a secret. So. Okay, more interview, more reporters want to interview them, and it's actually sprinkled throughout this entire book that they give interviews to a few reporters. They let them in, and every single one of them witness something happening every time. But I'm not going to get it. Like, it's it's so many, yeah. and, and all they see is shit moving. Yeah. So, you know. Um, but this time, they grant, the, grant an interview and something crazy happens while these guys are in the house. They are T Tim Quinn and Bob Pantano, I think. So Tim and Bob, they 
they don't know what a poltergeist is. So they meet everyone, and Ed is trying to explain, you know, what a poltergeist is and what is going on in the house. And Laura comes in, and again, she sounds like a fucking lunatic. It says, quote, my house is a mess. Just look at my home. We don't know what it is, and we are not cuckoo. He makes her sound crazy. Yeah. I hate it. Uh, then Bob kneels down by the cat. He puts he puts the recorder up to the cat and says, Hi, cat. I hear you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> it did not ease the tension like he hoped it would. So, like, total crickets. He's probably like, fuck, that was funny to me. Then it was around midnight, and they were all in the kitchen, and they hear a loud bang from the living room where Marcia is, and notice an end table is a bit askew. So Bob watches it and sees it move on its own. So they come in trying to make light of it and trying to catch Marcia doing something. So they're totally trying to debunk this hoax, Mm -hmm. basically. So when they realize that it's, it's not what they expected, they turn off their recorders and say this should remain a private matter, which... Fuck yes. Yeah. I love them. Um, but, you know, they still want to see the circus. So they oh, say. Of course, yeah. Um, so they hear cl- a clicking sound coming from the living room and shit starts moving again. Jerry says that he feels that good old-fashioned feeling again. And Marcia is sitting in the recliner and it swiftly reclines after they hear this weird noise. Then it quickly sets itself upright. Bob sees this and it clearly was not Marcia's doing. And it scared the shit out of Bob, which... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tim even tried to replicate that movement, but it he couldn't because it's not fucking her. Another thing that they noticed was that Marcia had basically no reaction, which, girl, what the fuck? That's well, crazy. It's like you said, maybe this stuff follows her around. Yeah, it could be happening maybe. her whole life. Yeah. Maybe that's why they tied her to a chair. Maybe, yeah, and maybe that's why she was the only one that was adopted out. Oh my god, we solved it! <laughs> She's like, you need to get her the fuck out of here. <laughs> Messing up my house and shit. <laughs> so then Jerry starts yelling in the air, which he sounds like a lunatic too, but he doesn't get the same treatment as poor Laura. That's because he's amazing. I know. William J. Scott, or whatever your name is. <laughs> um, I feel bad about that now. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, so he starts yelling in the air about how they gave they gave this thing a home and it's acting like a child. <laughs> Which dude? It's a demon. <laughs> so he tells Marcia to go to bed and she goes to tell Lorraine goodnight, or they think that's what she's doing because she didn't make it that far. It takes uh, she takes off in an alarming speed backwards. So this thing like throws her again. Mm-hmm. Um, she hits her arm on the refrigerator and slams into the wall. They freak out and see if she's okay. She's terrified, but fine. Um, then the fucking cat approached Bob, and he swore it said help. <laughs> <laughs> I can't with the cat. I can't. <laughs> so things continue to move, and Marcia tells them that she wants to leave, but they decide to stay. Fucking bullshit. More shit is moving. Tim and Bob get the fuck out of there. And they are leaving. And as they're leaving, they're still seeing things move. Ed and Lorraine, Father Bill, and Paul all start to leave. Father Bill instructed the officers outside to stay quiet about what they witnessed and blessed most of the officers. 
Officer Frank Del Toro refused the blessing because he still thought it was a hoax, but he hasn't spent any time in that house yet. So Monday night, Officer Mike Costello is working crowd control, but it's cold, so it's not that big. So he goes inside, and Jerry's upset and starts to call the demon a spoiled child again. Um, he asked Officer Costello to call for someone to stay in the, inside the house, and officers... Zawacki and Del Toro respond. So they're in the house and Marcia is a little, a bored little girl. So she moved the TV with her foot and it hits Jerry's leg and it startles him. But Officer Costello saw this and that was it. Mm-hmm. He called the other officers over and said that he thought the demon was getting a lot of help from Marcia, which no, you, no. So why would she throw herself across a room? How? I mean, it's not possible. And what the t- was it? The TV that fell on her ankle. The, well, the bureau fell on her ankle. Yeah. The TV hit her. She and was thrown it, across the room twice now. Things right? are yeah. Things are happening when she's not even anywhere close. Mm-hmm. So it's just ridiculous. So they start to clean up and they start pointing out how easy everything is to move, trying to prove that Marcia is causing this. So Marcia starts confessing to doing some of the things that had been happening. And then is uh, specifically says that they're, they're confused to see the goodens weren't relieved that they, uh, that they weren't relieved and they quote, looked like they lost a million dollars, which I'm like, fuck whatever. Seriously. Then it says that Marcia starts to cry because, you know, she feels bad. She's a normal child, as far as I know. Yeah. And Laura looked at her with, quote, disgust and anger. Whatever. What the fuck, bitch. So Mike took her into the kitchen and asked her, you know, what was wrong. She's crying, and she says that she wanted to see if the demon would do anything. So that right there, like, she's just... She did it because, I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> anyway, so she, she also said that a blister that Lorraine had said happened in the house was caused by her putting her hand in hot water. She said no one put her up to doing anything. So they call they basically call in the, that the whole thing is a hoax. But everyone who witnessed these things knows it's not, because mm-hmm. it's not. So first they think that the Warrens put them up to this. As soon as things start happening... The Warrens come in like the Calvary save the day. It's a huge reputation builder, and they're going to give the Goodens a million dollars to play along. But this makes no sense. They are already known. They had a good reputation at this time. Then Mike noticed that they had a fire extinguisher. So he's like, oh, they're going to ramp things up, these hauntings up, and start a fire. And he stuck with that. So because they had a fire extinguisher, they're going to set their house on fire. And it was it was just the goodens they they wanted attention I guess like why I mean that doesn't even make sense but they suggest that Marcia get some help and a doctor concluded that she is in need of psychiatric treatment in the seventies yikes uh-huh. um, they tell the officers that they want they don't want anyone in the house they are appalled that the wards would embellish like that going to lengths of burning her hand what they didn't know was the burn like 
Lorraine had on her hand was most likely impossible to get under hot water like that. Yeah, how many times have you put your hand in hot water? Seriously, it no, it doesn't happen like that. It was a story a little girl made up. Mm-hmm. So, they were upset that Marcia was now being blamed for everything just because she said she did a few things, which, yeah, she didn't. Anyway, um, Ed and Lorraine heard the news report about it being a hoax. They're pissed. They all reach out to the Goodens, Ed, Lorraine, Father Bill, and Paul, and all of them say they don't want or need their help anymore. So the case is closed as a hoax, and because it's closed, the police are told not to respond to the Goodens' home where a paranormal event or mysterious happening is being reported. So they are really on their own. Yeah. So they start talking about how Marcia reads occult books and is into a, quote, spiritual bag, which I must be 70s talk because I must don't be, know what that is. I don't know what that is. Um, then <clears throat> Jerry makes a public announcement, and he just wants the attention off of his daughter. So he says that she must have been controlled and that it looked like she was on drugs until she snapped out of it. That is That it was not her doing. So everyone starts going after Ed and Lorraine's, and they are defending themselves. Everyone's just pissed. It's all crazy. Uh, cut to the demon laughing in the corner, mm-hmm. I said, because that's probably exactly what demons want. Mm-hmm. Um, as they all are doing this, they are defending the Gooden family. They're saying things like, there has to be a logical explanation for all the things I saw, but whatever it is, I don't have an explanation. I doubt the Goodens would have caused these things to move. It was my personal observation that they typically weren't even near things when they moved. So, and that, you know, that's the case. Another officer said that it was not just one or two things happening that were being seen, but many things happening all at once. Mm -hmm. So how can they think this little girl was doing this? It's insane. It's because like I said, they're all in denial. They're all trying to find some, logical explanation for something that is not logical. But that is not logical. You know, I mean, it's, oh my God. So they take her to a doctor. She's fine, stressed out. Everyone's stressed. Jerry's smoking more. Activity's still happening. Then it's Thanksgiving and they are trying to relax and Jerry starts to smell smoke. I think, oh my God, they're definitely going to think it's them now because that's exactly what they thought. But... The, the the crowd actually did something good. They see these two men running away, and the police search the area and arrest Juan Burgos, along with two other men, Herman Burgos Jr. and Miguel Base, and they are all charged with conspiracy to commit arson. They claim they were trying to get rid of the house and the evil. So still December, activity seems to be slowing way down, seems to be a happy time other than the assholes at Jerry's work that are still bothering him, won't leave him alone. The stress has taken a toll on him, but they rescue a new dog and name him Silver. (laughs) Then on December 10th, Laura rushes out of the house in panic, and yes, people are still crowding around that house. Not many people, but a few. Shit is still moving, and three officers go to see things moving on their own. They put stuff back, and it's super heavy, and it moves so quick and smoothly with no sound at all. So crazy. That is crazy. Um, Marcia then asks if one of the officers, Officer Siemens, I I think that's his name. Oh, God. I hope. (laughs) But they play 
checkers with, he, she asked him to play checkers with her. So they set up the game in the kitchen. They play a good game of checkers, and Marcia leaves the room, and the bureau and the TV set fall over at the same time while she's walking out. She wasn't where, anywhere near them at this, at this time, um, but Mar Marcia told, the, told Laura that Officer Siemens had cheated, and she didn't like that. Hmm. Laura asked the officer what he thought, and he said she should go stay at her sister's, and finally... They decide to go stay at her sister's, and at 3 p.m. that day, they leave. And that was the first half, <laughs> three hours later, of this Well, book. it's good, because the second half isn't that much. <laughs> okay, good. All right, so the occurrences continued on Wednesday, December 11th, 1974. The falling and moving of the TV, the stereo, the bureau, and the sewing machine had all become a routine part of the strange haunting that once again consumed the house. You know, they're roommates. Yeah. <laughs> they opted not to call the police because it always attracted publicity and unruly crowds. On December 12th, those items all began moving at the same time. This time they decided they would call the police. The officers couldn't blame Marcia. Was it Marcia? Yeah. At that time, she wasn't in the house. Yeah. Because she's not doing anything. She wasn't even there. That's crazy. What the heck is happening? I don't know. Bird-like. Don't. On the 13th, <laughs> Father Doyle stopped by to see how the family was doing. They had been staying at Lillian's home for a couple of days as they were sick of the poltergeist antics. Uh, Father Doyle suggested that they keep their much-loved bi-weekly routine and go to New York on Saturday. For almost a month, they had been unable, unable to attend church locally due to the notoriety that followed them around. Um, reporters and other nosy people hounded the family on their way in and out of the church and wouldn't give them any peace. Uh, after staying overnight at Lillian's house, the Goodens returned home on the 14th to pack and leave for New York. They were well-rested and feeling good, good about being away from the house. Their peace turned to anxiety when they walked into the house and found the place in shambles. Oh, God. So they were all gone. Yeah. So all this happened when they were gone. Crazy. Laura and Marcia, I, that sounds so I know, you can say Marcy or Marcia, just the M name, we're talking about the little girl. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, they both burst into tears. Jerry was speechless. Um, the Christmas tree was down and the star was completely cut off the top of the tree. The ornaments had been removed and lay in one neat little pile on the floor beside the tree stand. The only thing left on the tree was a strand of lights. Jerry, of course, said he was going to fix it, make it better. On denial um, again. Good Lord. He, Jerry just kept replaying everything in his mind. He said no one outside of the immediate family had a key to the house. It remained locked whenever they weren't there. Uh, the slicing of the star was very disturbing to Jerry and showed an escalating sort of personalized destruction. Yeah, that and the ornaments in a little pile. Yeah, that's that's what creeped me out. Yeah. So they wasted no time packing snacks for the trip to New York. So they they went to New York. They went to a little church in White Plains, New York. They talked to the Father Denson, that was the local parish priest, about their troubles at the house and about Father Doyle's and Father Charbonneau's attempts to help. Then uh, they visited Jerry's cousin, and the day was enjoyable, which that reminds me a little bit of 
been invited to. Yeah, when they, they leave as soon as they think they're having a great time, yeah. shit starts to go down. Refreshed by the trip, the Goodens headed home to Lindley Street. They were unsure if they would stay there for the night, but they wanted to check on things and see if there was any new surprises. Mm-hmm. Jerry unlocked the front door and went inside. It was always his habit to enter the house first, since the troubles had started. He turned on the light, and the first thing he noticed was that all the pictures on the living room walls were crooked. Jerry and Laura went to work straightening them. <laughs> in the kitchen, they found the wall clock down on the counter. The kitchen shelf had been pulled away from the wall earlier and was upside down. The brackets were curled under as if they were fighting to hold on. Oh, that's their, crazy. Their beloved Madonna statue was on the floor. Um, upon inspection, the thumbs had been carefully removed. I thought that was nuts. That's weird. <laughs> that Why the thumbs? I don't know. And I wonder if it's... Because most of the Mary statues I've seen, she's got, got her hands in prayer position. Uh-huh. How the fuck? I don't know. Crazy. That's weird. And of course, Laura bursts into tears. She did. She is hysterical and loud yes. and no social skills. They, they searched the floor for the thumbs, but they were nowhere to be found. Their picture of St. Jude was on the floor. Other furniture was toppled over. They had become used to such things. No. Um, but no. the nature of the attack felt much more personal. You don't get used to that. No. No. That cannot happen. They realized that Silver, the dog, had not come to meet them. Jerry searched the house and found him hiding under their bed. I was so scared for that dog. I know. When they After said the they wa- got... They unwelcomed I know. Them? Oh, my God. Thank God, Silver. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess he does it quite a bit. In the, well, they said in the past week or so, he's been hiding. Yeah, and Laura actually specifically mentions the fact that she was like, we really thought we were rescuing this poor dog. Yeah. And now it's terrified. Uh, Laura called Lillian and her son Bobby answered. Laura explained what had happened to Bobby related to his mom. It's happening again. They're coming back over. They pack their bags and stay the night at Lillian's. Thank God they're actually being smart and leaving this place. Yeah. Uh, so the next day was Sunday, December 15th. They went to see Father Doyle, who had instructed the Goodens <laughs> to, report, <laughs> to report to him everything that had happened. Jerry told him that they're not scientists. We don't know what's happening. <laughs> what? No way. <laughs> Father Doyle assured them that he was doing everything possible to get an exorcism approved. Church reacted cautiously in these matters, especially considering the public nature of their case. On Monday, December 16th, they received a call from Boyce Beatty, who introduced himself by saying he had some expertise in dealing with poltergeists and thought he might be able to provide some assistance. Jerry and Laura were excited about it, and they were excited because there was going to be somebody new again, that's a lot like the unwelcome when they, every single time they yeah. were like, oh, thank God someone's helping, and then nobody ever does. So, uh, in the book, this this is where the scientific investigation begins. So, this is December 18, 1974. Later that day, Blue Harari <laughs> and Jerry Salfin from the Psych 
how do you say that? Psychical? Psychical? I don't know. Research Foundation <laughs> and Boyce Beatty, a fellow of the American Society for Psychical Research. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. Met at the house and interviewed the Gooden family, hoping to shed some new light on the poltergeist incidents. The family welcomed them, um, hoping it might all lead to some explanation, if not a solution. The team also met with Ed Warren away from the house. Ed briefed them on the family background that he had gathered and the interviews he had conducted and vouched for what he had personally witnessed in the house. He handed over his interview tape along with the tapes of the sounds that Jerry had recorded back in 1972. Ed also voiced his disappointment at having been made to look like a fool once it had officially been shrugged off by the legal authorities of the hoax. They said I drugged Marcy with candy, used witchcraft, put a spell on everyone, and they <laughs> think I'm the nut? I thought that Seriously, was Seriously, hell yeah. 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 They concluded that they needed to go through official channels and obtain the police records from the case. They also discussed the complications that often arose because children tended to extend the game well beyond the participation of any paranormal forces, which I don't really know what that means. It still doesn't explain why this is happening when no one is around. Yeah. Period. Like, how, how can they even... I just don't, I don't understand. I, I don't know. How can they be so stuck on one idea when it doesn't make sense? Mm -mm. Uh, the interviews continued at the Gooden home, at the fire station, and at the police station. Boyce Beatty heard a bureau falling over and caught it on tape. He also taped some sort of interference from whatever entity or energy source was moving furniture. Jerry Sullivan contacted the Bridgeport police explaining who he was and described the nature of the help he wanted to offer. The next morning, he was sitting in Inspector Clark's office. Uh, Clark gave him a warm welcome. So it says that once Clark had taken the time to review the relevant reports on the case, that he believed that it was no hoax and his original thoughts were wrong. Right. A lot of people actually, because these people saw things with their own yeah. freaking face, and they, I, they can't explain it. And it said on here that his problem had been that his superior directed him to close the case immediately because something had to be done and he was supposed to be the guy to finally make it in and restore Bridgeport back to business as usual. Which I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts mm -hmm. and a lot of times police will just be like, okay, well, just say this and let's close the case. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that's, Terrible. How is that earning your It's not your pay? I'm not saying all cops are like this, but a lot of times it's just closing the case. They don't yeah. care how, they don't care who, they don't care. Yeah. And that's how a lot of people end up in jail that Absolutely. shouldn't be in jail. And there's a lot. Yes, there is. Super scary. So he ends up the inspector inspector ends up he lets out a deep sigh. <laughs> And he told him, I'm sorry, I did the best I could with what I had in that situation. At that point, it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. Whatever. Yeah, fuck off. Seriously. Salvin made it clear that he applauded Clark's efforts in a most difficult situation and understood why the hoax announcement had taken place. He can fuck off too. Yes, he can. Clark told him that he could help him by keeping the press away. Let's call it case closed and we'll do it very quietly. 
<laughs> he agreed to set up a conference room and require that the police officers involved be interviewed, whichever one Sullivan wanted. The two of them further agreed that the inspector, Captain Fabrizi, I like that name, <laughs> and Superintendent Walsh would never have to hear the content of these interviews. The in, a, in other words, we didn't do it. We didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. We didn't do it. Yep. The officers were free to tell it like it is, and they were encouraged to do so. So the next part of the book is it's Marcy's 11th birthday. It starts off with the quote from uh, police captain Anthony Fabrizi. The girl is into a spiritual bag. 70s talk. She reads books on religious cults and gurus, and she was always carrying one of those books. So... Even if that was true, which it's not. It's not. She's reading a book. Maybe even not that. Uh, so stupid. It had, it had been shut. <laughs> it had been dubbed a hoax to the country, but the Goodens and the Poltergeist were not convinced. It became indisputably obvious that the phenomena continued when Marcy was nowhere around. Exactly. This book drove me nuts. <laughs> On December 27th, at 12.15 in the morning, Marcy was in bed asleep with the shade on her window rolled up. The associated racket woke the family, and Laura went to check on Marcy. She pulled down the shade, kissed Marcy on the forehead, and turned toward the door. At that point, the roller came off its brackets and fell to the floor. It was, it was as if the two of them were being taunted. Mm. At 9 a.m., the kitchen table greeted Jerry by feet flipping completely over the way it had done so many times before. Both Marcy and Laura were still in bed. But he made it smaller. <laughs> what, that didn't work? It didn't work. <laughs> so basically, it's just going over. It's more shit. Stuff. Shit moves. Yeah. That's all it is. That's mainly, the whole book was just description of everything moving all the time, which is horrifying. So... Salvin and Harari came back to the house to continue their investigation. Uh, they set up a recorder to capture any audio, and by early evening they were gone. Said the experiment soon paid off. Just after midnight, the picture fell off the wall in Marcy's bedroom, and the recorder captured the sound. Um, well, that doesn't. Yeah, that doesn't prove anything. Maybe back in 1970, whatever this was. <laughs> Maybe. So then the next thing... Um, on December 28th, it was Marcy's birthday, and they were poltergeist-free. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. They had guests over, but I guess nothing happened that day. So now we're back to the scientific investigation. Boyce Beatty, who lived in Bloomfield, Connecticut, was the chairman of the Central Connecticut Chapter of the Spiritual Frontiers Fellowship, a group that explored new frontiers of knowledge. Together with Keith Blue Harari and Jerry Sullivan, Beatty and his group set out to investigate the haunting of the Lonely Street House in several in a several-week study. It started on December 18th, and most interviews were ended in early January 1975. They conducted the following psychological tests on Jerry and Laura Gooden, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the Personality Orientation Inventory, the Taylor Manifest Anxiety Scale, the Interpersonal Checklist, and a Site Attitude Questionnaire designed by their foundation. So, 
the MMPI, which was the good, the Minnesota, <laughs> the Minnesota multi-phase personality inventory method was developed in the 1930s by Dr. Stark Hathaway and Dr. J.C. McKinley at the University of Minnesota. It measures values and attitudes and is used to gauge one's mental health. The Taylor Manifest Anxiety Scale assesses anxiety disorders and uh, says this is seldom used today. Yeah, probably didn't work at all. Yeah. Uh, interpersonal checklist will measure interpersonal abilities and communication skills. And the Psy Attitude Questionnaire measures the subject's attitude towards psychic and paranormal phenomena. The group approached the phenomenon with a sound objective rule. To be genuine phenomena, the events had to occur in full view of witnesses with other possible causes eliminated. Otherwise, the event is not considered evidence and must be considered as inconclusive and potentially fraudulent. They had no idea that the Lindley Street case would end up being perhaps the best documented case of poltergeist in history. And there's that stupid thing. Just the interviews? Well, one of them. It's just a conversation that oh, that's Jerry, right. <laughs> Laura, Boyce, and Father... I guess Bill, I don't know, were having that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. So, basically, this whole thing comes to an end by saying that they concluded that this was a hoax with zero evidence. Yeah. It, some people thought it was a hoax. Other people thought that Marcy was the cause of, of the paranormal. The paranormal. On January 10th, 1975, a for sale sign went up on the Gooden's house. The listing price was $31,500, which, according to the Gooden's realtor, was the proper market price for that house, not accounting for the publicity. Jerry told the agent that they were trying to sell the house and move away from Bridgeport so Marcy could grow up without the event hanging over her. Uh, little did the Goodens know that the house on Lindley Street would never sell during their lifetime. Huh. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. In the late winter and early spring of 1975, the Gooden home was egged. Vandals broke house windows, the driver's side car mirror was broken off, and even the tires were slashed. Laura was victimized, too, at times when she put clothes out on the dryer to, out to dry on the line. She would later come out to find they were pulled off the line and now lay all over the ground. In January of 1976, when they realized they were not going to be able to sell their tiny bungalow, they decided to give the house a new coat of white paint and remove the two infamous concrete swan planters from the front porch. The swans were damaged from the crowd members chipping off pieces of the white paint to keep the souvenirs. Plus, they were too identifiable as the house where the poltergeist attack took place. Family had stopped giving interviews of any kind. Marcy was doing well in school, and the Goodens had an unlisted phone number. So, in 1983, a former classmate from St. Patrick's School saw Marcy working as a cashier at a convenience store and recounted his interaction. At this time, Marcy was around 19. Uh, she was in this former classmate. She was in his fifth grade class in St. Patrick Catholic School around 1974. He asked her if she remembered him, and she nodded and smiled. 
When you mentioned that she had lived in that house on Lindley Street, she suddenly got a deer in the headlights, terrified look, and said, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the convenience store was in downtown Bridgeport near the military recruiting stations. He was home on leave at this time. Um, as for Jerry and Laura, they remained silent on Lindley Street, living in the same small bungalow for the rest of their lives. Jerry retired from Harvey Hubble, Inc. as a security guard, and Laura later worked for... <laughs> on, <laughs> on June 11, 1993, at age 68, Laura Gooden was in a fatal car crash in Monroe, Connecticut. The, the obituary was very short and only mentioned that Laura was the wife of Gerard Gooden. Poor Laura! What the fuck? Marcy was not mentioned. What the fuck? Four years later, on September 24, 1997, Jerry Gooden died at age 78 of natural causes. Jerry's obituary was much longer. Oh my god, I'm it, so surprised. Yeah, it mentioned his later position as a guard at Harvard Hubble, Inc., along with him being a World War II Air Force veteran and a member of the American Legion and the Knights of Columbus. He was survived by his two brothers and several nieces and nephews. There was no mention of Marcy here, either. What? And then it says, what happened to Marcy? Yeah. The Gooden sent a yearly Christmas card to Boyce Beatty after the investigation in late 1974 and early 1975. Most were just signed by the family and didn't provide any news or insight. However, two of them did, and the messages that were written within the cards are recorded here. So this is what they said. This is December 19, 1975. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Beatty and family, just a few lines to let you know we are fine and staying here at Lindley Street. Hope you all have a happy holiday, Jerry and Laura and Marcy. December 9th, 1980, so this is five years later. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Beatty, hope you have a nice holiday. Well, when our daughter reaches 18, she informed us she is going to find her own parents in Canada. We are very upset about it. She told us we're not good enough for her. Well, there isn't anything we could do but to pray she changes her mind. Please pray for um, why did you put that in a Christmas card? <laughs> I know! That's so weird! <laughs> so, what? our life sucks right now. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Hope you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> they think that Marcy most likely went back to Canada, unless she has fallen on hard times and was living off the grid on someone's couch in the United States. Um, but because she had a social security number, it was more likely that she was in Canada. Well, that guy ran into her in Connecticut when she was 19. That was after she was 18, which said that's when she was going to start looking for her parents. Yeah. So that's weird. Well, she might have had to like, make some money. Before she oh, maybe, yeah. But I guess one of their, the author, came across a cousin... And the cousin confirmed that Marcy did go to Canada. It was also confirmed that Marcy Gooden was alive and well as of a few years ago. So for six to eight weeks in November 1971, tappings, poundings, and scratchings on the wall and under the bed of the Gooden family occurred. These sounds appear to have focused on Mrs. Gooden, following her from room to room, even while her husband and adopted daughter were away from the house. Physical events commenced on November 21, 1974, when an inside window in the master bedroom broke, 
shattering glass throughout the room. On November 22nd, curtains fell. On November 23rd, the number and violence of events increased. A floor model television set fell and injured two toes on Mrs. Gooden's foot. The kitchen tables and chairs flipped. The curtains and shower rod on the bathroom fell down. The greatest activity occurred on Sunday, November 24th. The refrigerator moved. The daughter's bureau fell. TV sets fell over multiple times. Religious objects flew off the walls. The kitchen table and chairs flipped multiple times. The couch lifted off the floor. Reclining chairs fell over and went suddenly into reclining position while occupied by the 10-year-old girl. Desks fell over. Pictures flew off walls. Melmac dishes fell with such force as to break. End tables holding lamps flipped, mirrors fell from the walls, and a number of these incidents were witnessed by Bridgeport policemen, firemen, reporters, psychical investigators, priests, neighbors, relatives, and friends of the Goodens. Because of the publicity, a sociological problem of crowds of sightseers developed. Activity continued on November 25th in the house and outside the house. Police erected barriers around the block to control the crowds. Early on the morning on November 26th, the police announced that the daughter had confessed to creating the unusual events by a hoax. The media carried the story and crowd control problem terminated. So, basically, on October 21st, 1974, the girl was badly injured when hit by a fellow pupil at the elementary school she attended. So this is Marston. Right. Her back had been strapped, and she stayed home since that incident and received schooling from a tutor. Since considerable tension in the family, especially between the mother and the girl and the mother and the father. Expect the girl had been building up feelings of anger, hostility, resentment, fear, anxiety during this period. In addition, since they, whoever wrote this, since that the girl is overly protected by both parents, especially the mother, that she is very frustrated and annoyed at this. Although she does not express these feelings and tends to resolve them by withdrawing or crying, the mother strikes me as being very unhappy, emotionally unstable, fearful, anxious, and extremely defensive. The girl is intelligent, sensitive, creative, artistically talented, withdrawn, lonely, disturbed, and pre-adolescent, with psychological tension this age implies. She has no playmates, is is constantly in the presence of her parents, just as was their retarded son. <laughs> don't. That's what it says. I am just reading it. Well, don't laugh. I'm sorry. because <laughs> I, I didn't expect it. I was just reading. Anyway. <laughs> I was not expecting that either, by the way. <laughs> It's because I don't use that word, and I, I just read it. And I was like, oh, wait, that's not. Okay. Um, so, so it says she has no comp. Her, she has no playmates, is constantly in the presence of her parents. So, basically, it's just saying that the parents are raising the girl the same way they raised right, her Right, which, which we yeah. said that earlier, which makes sense, but... Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. what I get is that they're trying to say that Marcy was causing everything because she was very unhappy about the way she's being raised. She she was being raised by helicopter parents. She didn't have any space of her own. 
She was constantly followed, watched, and keeping all of those emotions and anger and frustration pent up. Yeah. Which, from what I get, I think I think what people have kind of figured out is that, especially girls around puberty age, around puberty age, they don't necessarily cause the stuff to happen, but whatever energy that they are producing makes it. They don't know they're causing it. Yeah, but the energy, yeah, the, all this energy that they have has to be translated because. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It has to be transformed yeah. into some other type of energy. Form. Right. And if she is angry about her mother constantly in her face, but still, why would she hurt herself? How could, yeah, how could she fly across the freaking room? That doesn't make any sense. I kind of, it kind of did. She could have been upset. Each of those times, you know, but again, they all say she's a quiet, sweet little girl. Mm -hmm. So like Jerry telling her to go to bed, I don't think is a huge thing that she would be pissed about. Yeah. And that's what happened right before she like flew down the hall or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. It just, there's, there's so many questions that nobody has the answer to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's frustrating, and they want to blame it on this girl. And I mean, then it mentioned in the beginning something like she had been communicating with her grandfather, which I thought maybe yeah. that could have been the, the the thing. Like he was trying to scare them into, I don't know, sending her home, or I, you know, I. It's just so crazy. There's so many questions still, and nobody will ever know. No. And then, you know, the rest of the book is just, it has each person that was there kind of telling their, what they witnessed, and, and that was basically the end of the book. So, basically, they have no clue. Exactly. <laughs> Again, it's all, like, full circle. If you believe it, you believe it. If you don't, you don't. Yeah. Or, like, well, like you said, if you believe it, you know, you're going to believe it. If you don't know, or yeah, if you're skeptical, no amount of proof is going to change your mind. No. So, so it sounds like too, that she finally got fed up with her mother and she's like, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of sounded as soon as she turned 18, she's like, see ya. Which if she was raised like that, I can't say I blame her. Yeah. It would be so frustrating and enraging. Couldn't live with that. Mm-mm. Gotta have your space. Anyway, yeah. So that was our book. We are actually going to do a short book next week. Yeah, we won't be so long-winded. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I felt like we owed them at <laughs> That's least true. a longer episode, and I talked the entire time. <laughs> I was very long-winded. Well, that's when all the stuff happened was at the beginning of the book. My part was just kind of like, you know, the leftover. Scientific books. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So we're going to do, what was that? It is called You Can't Escape the Woods. The Woods Hold Dark Secrets by Steph Young. So this is a shorter book. We're going to do that next week. And then the week after we'll be documentary of some sort and then another book yeah so look for that
still send us in your ghost stories, or funny stories, anything. We will take it. We really don't care. Even if it's mean. I think I'll read it. <laughs> Just anything. <laughs> yeah. Please. Tell us we suck. Something. <laughs> Please. Ghouls Night Out Podcast at gmail.com. You can look up, <laughs> look us up on Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff, even though I don't post. And we will talk to you next week. Later.